Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. David Zendel is back on the show. We are super happy to talk to David once again. So Marty and myself sit down and have a great conversation. Check out the show notes for a link to David's work. He's got a new book coming out. Please remember, like the show, rate the show, review us. We want to hear from you. We have a lot of amazing guests coming on the show all the time. We really want to hear from you. Let us know what you think. All right, David is waiting for us. Let's make our way over to the bridge. We are extremely pleased to once again have a friend of the show, David Zindel, on on the Tales from the Bridge again today. Uh, David was our very first interview a year and a half ago. Uh, and he has come back to join us again to talk about his latest uh, book, which is coming out on February 16th, called The Remembrancer's Tale. Now, this is, after 25 years, uh, the first uh, new installation in, in uh, the Neverness universe. Um, it's been since the end of... Uh, so he wrote Neverness in 1988, and that was followed by a trilogy called Requiem for Homo Sapiens uh, throughout the 90s. And then in the 2000s, he wrote a fantasy uh, series called The Ea Cycle. And now, after after 25 years, he's back with a new book uh, that continues um, the tale of, of Thomas Rain, who was the Lord Remembrancer in Neverness. And uh, we're so pleased to read this. Uh, I've just had the, the privilege of reading an advanced copy, and uh, we're really happy to have you back on the show to talk, talk more about your work, David. Thanks, Marty. It was a pleasure talking to you the last time. And I can't believe, as you say it, that it's been 25 years because it doesn't yeah. seem that long. Yeah. Uh, something we'll let our listeners know as well. Our second episode that we did with the show, we all read Neverness. And uh, it's one of those books that was um, very different than the science fiction we were reading. Uh, it, and it's one of Marty's favorite books, if not, I think, his favorite book. And we all really enjoyed it. So listeners out there, if you want to know more about Neverness, um, episode two, we talk about that. And then, of course, I believe episode six and seven, we did a two part with David because our conversation was so long and we didn't want to cut it because we got to so many interesting things. And I hope we go there again today talking about writing and uh, some big existential ideas. We definitely want to find out what's going on with the human soul and God and the universe and why everything is the way it is. That's right. This is why we love you, David. Uh, you tackle the big questions in a way that many authors don't, and, and I love hearing about that. Um, maybe we should do a little uh, intro to Neverness. It is indeed my favorite book. Um, David won the Writers of the Future Award, I believe, in 1985 uh, for a short story called Shanadar, and then was given a, a contract to write his very first book, uh, and the, the result was Neverness, which came out in 88. And it is an absolutely unique work. And those who love it, love it a lot. Um, it is far future science fiction. Uh, it's I would categorize it almost as sort of uh, science fantasy. You know, it's sort of like Dune in that sense. It's so far in the future with technology so advanced uh, uh, that that it's almost uh, like, a, like a fantasy novel. Um, and it's just so incredibly imaginative. Uh, there's so much in in Neverness and in the universe that you built, David. Um, and it's so poetic and it's so uh, effusive and it's so philosophical and spiritual that, um, you know, I've read it many times. And in fact, it's it's uh, it's given me some wisdom to help me through through some hard moments in my life. And in fact, um, 
both Neverness and the rest of the Requiem for Homo Sapiens, and now the Remembrancer's Tale, all deal with some pretty intense, well, some heavy issues. You, you talk about death a lot. You know, you sort of, it's not that you talk about it, but you delve into the theme of of death, and especially in the Remembrancer's Tale, you know, it is, a, it's like a meditation on on memory and loss of love, um, which I think is, you know, everybody, if they haven't gone through it in life yet, they will at some point. So maybe I just want to jump right into the heart of the matter, David. Um, can you tell us why you're, you zoomed in on, on this theme for this book? Uh, and, and, and maybe tell us why you wrote it after so, so long uh, away from the Neverness universe. Yeah, those are really good questions. Thanks, Marty, and thanks for your praise. It's a little embarrassing, but uh, I do appreciate it. Of course, you know, writers live on that. Uh, uh, so, yeah, well, you know, just going back, because as you say, it's been a long, a long arc uh, from uh, when I started writing Neverness in, what, 1980, uh, 1985. <laughs> so that's, what, 30 you know, 30 plus, 35 years. And that, that, that's been a very long arc. Um, so when I finished Requiem, the Requiem trilogy, I pretty much thought I was done with, with everything. You know, it was a big, uh, we had exploding stars and, you know, that was going to affect this galactic civilization. or did affect it. And there was a big climactic battle between, you know, various forces and i thought well you know this is pretty much done also where i left things uh i don't know want to give too much away but let's just say at the end of those books the future course for for human evolution and, and evolution in the cosmos was pretty much hinted at very strongly and i thought i can't really go any farther with that because I'm unevolved, I'm a very unevolved man. And so to literally imagine what the next phase of human evolution would look like, and I don't mean technological evolution because there was only so far I could go with that, right? Exploding stars and you know, nanotechnology and literally uh, a goddess's, you know, the solid state entity's goddess ability to literally bring somebody to life and imbue that person with memories that that's all those concepts seem to take the technology about as far as I could. And so I want to do something at the end of the Requiem books that was more on a, you know, personal ontogenetic, if you will, basis for evolution of, you know, just what, how would the human organism unfold its own evolution next? And, I think I hinted at that very strongly, and I just thought, I, I, can't, I can't take this any further. I've had this big cosmic battle, and, and then that. And so it's like, what, what else could I do? So I thought I was done. So then at that time, I wrote the E-Cycle, and you know, just pure fantasy. Okay, you know, that's what happens with science fiction when it gets a little too far out there, as you say. Not too far out there, but when it gets far out there, it does tend towards fantasy. Uh, Dune does, my books do, many, many books do. And so I wrote that fantasy and I thought, well, there's just this one story 
in the Neverness universe that I always wanted to tell and was the story of Thomas Raine and how he tries to use his fantastic memory literally to recreate a love that he's lost. And in the process of doing that, uh, I realized maybe I do want to try to talk about the next phase of human evolution. And so that actually begins in, in that book with the Asta Saluna, the, you know, the, the star children who uh, are representing the next step in human evolution. And uh, I don't go too deeply into it in that book. Again, it's sort of only hinted at that, but it's a little bit more fleshed out. And so I'm seeing now that The Remembrancer's Tale is going to be a transitional book to a whole new series of Neverness novels. <laughs> and I didn't really want that to happen, but it just sort of happened. <laughs> so now I feel now in my, you know, <laughs> this ripe age of mine, uh, you know, tasked with writing many more novels, you know, <clears throat> I have at least three in mind. There might be more. <clears throat> what are they? Very exciting. Whose tale is next? Whose tale is next? <clears throat> the Scryer's Tale. The Scryer's Tale. Cool. Wow. <clears throat> now, for readers just being introduced to your work, David, should they be starting with Neverness? Should they move through the order you wrote them? Can we? Can a new reader jump into Rem Remembrancer's Tale? Is knowing Thomas Raine essential to reading that book from Neverness? Uh, or where, where should they jump in? Good questions, uh, Tristan. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's always good to begin a series at the beginning. And, and I don't know if you consider this a just extended series or now I have two series. But, you know, I think it's always good to begin at the beginning. But a lot of people won't want to do that. The, the Requiem books are, of course, long and uh, very involved. And, you know, it's a lot to get through. So when I wrote Remembrance's Tale, I very much had in mind that this novel should be accessible to anybody who hasn't read all the other books. Thomas Rain in the other books does play a role. Uh, <clears throat> so very much so in The Broken God which is part of uh, Requiem for Homo Sapiens. He is instrumental uh, through his administration of the Remembrancer's drug Kala of these remembrancing ceremonies uh, in which human beings are sort of ultimately activating parts of the genome that are like a sleeping god, so something that's going to you know, shape human evolution or drive human evolution. So he plays a part in that, but he's not a major character in those books. So with The Remembrancer's Tale, I feel like any reader could come to him anew and come to the universe anew and, and know what's going on. Uh, Marty, you've read the book, and what, how, what was your experience? I, I know you've read the other books and can't get them out of your mind, but were you able to go, oh, yeah, this makes sense on its own? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say you do a, a you know a very good job in the Remembrancer's Tale of sort of giving us some background of what happened in in the Broken God and in Neverness. Um, but I would say, I mean, as my experience as a reader would be that yeah, reading Neverness would be 
great <laughs> first because that really puts you in the world and you know you do such a so much world building in in that uh, that you then already know and love these characters and and you know I think you you don't need to read all of the the Requiem for Homo Sapiens to know what's going on in Remembrancer's Tale but I would recommend reading Neverness uh, first and then jumping into that yeah actually since you mentioned uh, the the Asta Siluna is that it. Asta Seluna, yeah, the, the the sort of children of the stars, the next gen, next um, phase of human evolution. I I have a quote that I would love to read, um, just to give people a flavor of your writing. He went on to say that the whole of the galaxy was alive and had a type of mind transcending and yet including all the separate minds and memories of those such as Rain, Bardo, Chandra, and everyone else. Bina because she had been blind, had needed to develop a deeper sense in order to speak the children's eye talk, or rather the soul talk, as Sanjay called it. It is really a simple thing, sir, Sanjay said, though I don't fully understand it yet myself. We read letters inscribed on paper to make out words. We kithe ideoplasts instantiated in our minds to understand our theorems and complexes of ideas, and we quench through memories emblazoned in our souls to speak the language of the universe. So I love that. That's that I think, you know, just gives gives a great flavor of, of your writing. And and, you know, you you create this vocabulary, you create new words uh, without having to thoroughly define them. But, you know, throughout Neverness and in your whole universe, that's part of what I love about it is you just have this language that you've sort of made sound and used just right to give us these ideas of you know quenging and kithing and <laughs> and ideoplasts and and things that people can just kind of you know get an intuition of, of what you're talking about so i love that little passage yeah and thank you <clears throat> you know I, I work pretty hard on new words uh, so I guess then there's a question too, why new words at all? <clears throat> I feel like a new concept that might be a little bit nebulous or hard to pin down really works well with a new word rather than just a paraphrase uh, of, of old words. And I, I would work really hard. I mean, Gene Wolfe, uh, you know, in his, in his great books, uh, <clears throat> uh, had lots of words, lots of new words. And you know, that inspired me. I thought, okay, you know, he, he does this great, you know, he, he'll probably be the all-time master of that. I'm going to be imitating this, but an imitation of something great is, you know, not, not a small thing. So, so, so he inspired me. And then I would go to dictionaries, uh, not dictionaries, my big dictionary, which is, you know, this Webster's is so huge. It comes in three parts and I can hardly lift one of them. And I would just read the dictionary. I would just scan for obscure words. Uh, huh. and some, some of them made, made it into my books and some of them like quench, uh, I don't know how that came about, but that sort of just came to me. Uh, oh, I was going to ask about that one. Cause that, that reminds me of grok, of grokking, uh, from Heinlein, right? It's this perfect word that just kind of, you need that word to be able to say <laughs> what you want to say. <laughs> grokking was so perfect. I thought, I want to use that word. Everyone now knows what it means, but you know, that that's a little bit dicey to do that. Cause then I'm, you know, borrowing from someone else's universe. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and then there was a question of, well, if that's now a common word in our universe, you know, here on planet earth in 2023, 
can I use it because I'm not really borrowing it from another universe? And it's now, you know, common coin as it were. Um, right. So I don't know about that one. But. Right. Right. Well, you use quenching a lot in um, your the book that you released before this in 2017, I believe, was the Idiot Gods, which might have a different title too. I see now it's the Orca's Song. Or maybe yeah. it's been published in two different things. So you use quenging a lot there, where these orcas uh, quenge to to basically. Uh, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell us a bit better bit about that? The idiot gods was my original title, and I thought you know that worked very well. But then, as I started talking to my British publisher about it, I was going, well, maybe my uh, British publisher's suggestion of the orcas song is just more friendly. It's more obvious what the book would be about. Um, mm. I liked idiot gods, you know, the idea of human beings. Look, we have these godly powers <clears throat> as far as uh, whales are concerned, but we're also idiots. <laughs> what are we done with these godly powers? <clears throat> Some of us lead these absolutely debased and hard, miserable lives, you know, on land. Uh, and so so they call us idiot gods. So I thought that was kind of a catchy, you know, edgy type of title. Uh, but then the more I thought about it <clears throat> for publication in the United States, I thought maybe Orca's song is better. So that's why, you know, those two titles exist. Quenching uh, in the preface to The Idiot Gods or The Orca's Song, I, you know, kind of give a whole introduction hinting around what quenching is. And it's one of those words that I would say you can't really pin down. And it's like, God, how would you define God? How would you define mysticism? Um, how would you define spirituality? I mean, you know, those are kind of general words and to many people they mean many different things but you know sometimes if we talk about oh well we had a spiritual experience you know that's maybe the best that we can describe uh various experiences that might be called you know mystical traditionally uh but some people have spiritual experiences you know and they said oh i had a spiritual experience at the football game right because you know i got in the middle of you know hundred thousand people and I felt part of something bigger. Uh, so, so quenching is a lot of things. It's, it's, uh, it is that certainly mystical sense, uh, mystical prowess, if you will. It's also a literal ability to travel through space, uh, not literally, but you know, I sort of leave some, <laughs> some, some question about that. Uh, when you quench, can you literally quench to another star, or is that just a sense of like, uh, uh, what, what's what's the right word uh, in, in traditional uh, having in mind blank? When when you can project your sight elsewhere and view something in a different place, that has a astral projection. Is that astral well, projection? Is that the what you're thinking of? Or, that, or that's maybe? one of them, but that's more like you're on a different plane. This would just be like, hmm, you know, if I close my eyes right now, I, I could be in your room, right? And, and see, I don't know if you call that astral projection because it's still the same physical level. Right, um, right. Remote clairvoy viewing? Clairvoyance, maybe, clairvoyance. But, but there's another. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That, that would be part of quenching. Uh, you know, this ability to, to look elsewhere. It's also a connection with your own soul. So, you know, quenching is one of these catch-all terms. And the whales themselves, 
who picked that word out, they sort of like created, because the whales, of course, don't have a language that's anything like English or anything like our languages. The, 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 the you know, protagonist of Idiot Gods, Arjuna, more or less created that word to represent something to human beings that was this whale thing that human beings really don't know about. And, and so it's kind of a catch-all term for a whole medley of whale capabilities, some of which we share. You know, I, I believe that all beings share the same spiritual nature, if you will. But there are whale aspects to to the way they experience reality. They're just utterly different than ours. For instance, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but whales sleep one half of their brain at a time. Oh. Whale, whale, whale breathing is under their conscious control. Ours is too, half the time. Some, you know, most of the time, we could just you know say, okay, I'm going to slow my breathing or speed my breathing up. Uh, and then a lot of times, even though it could be under our conscious control, we're not thinking about our breath. With, with whales, that is not true. They can't just breathe automatically because if they're underwater, they'll just breathe water and drown. And so they have to breathe consciously pretty much with every breath, just like, you know, it's just sort of like if I pick up this teacup, then, you know, that's going to be a, a conscious thing, even though I might not be thinking about it, it's still under my conscious control. So with whales, their, their breathing has to be like that, it has to be something they, they will themselves to do. And so that necessitates their being awake in some part of their brain all the time. And so that's why they sleep one half their brain and and then uh, you know wow that's amazing both halves of both halves are awake and uh i think i riffed on that neverness with one of my alien species that have uh you know quarter brains and say i think i said something in that book that's rare that you know these beings could be awake in all the quarters of their brains at the same time or, or something like that. And so, uh, hmm. so, so partake, partakes of all that. It's a sense of being awake as well. It's like being right. fully awake. So would you say you quench or you're quenching when you put the pen to paper or your hands to the keyboard? Is that an active thing that you do as a writer? That, that's a great question, Tristan. Thanks. Uh, something happens. <laughs> That's not a normal state for me. And, you know, uh, I, I wrote the last uh, books in, uh, in longhand. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just, I, I love sitting down with a piece of paper and a fountain pen and just writing things out. It's a very tactile experience, but somehow it's a very quiet experience too. It, it's quieter than... For, for me than you know, clacking away at a keyboard and looking at a screen. So something happens when I write, whether it's you know on a screen or, or on a piece of paper, so, something happens that's very different. Uh, yeah, that would be part of punching. Uh, not, not just because I'm in a state of creation, but because I'm also telling a story. So quenching is very related to, to telling stories. Uh, I would say that uh, 
not not to give too much away about my whale book, but Arjuna, because he's horribly treated by human beings and hates them, loses his ability to to uh, quench. And for a whale, that's just like I don't know, you know, like a bird losing its co uh, ability to perceive colors. Uh, and 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 so, you know, life just isn't really meaningful for him if he can't if he can't quench. And I sort of feel the same way about writing. It's just like yeah, that's what I do. That's what I came to Earth to do. Not not, not came to Earth. That's just because people don't come to Earth. They they come out of the Earth, and that's that's just what I was meant to do, and that's what makes me happiest. So, long answer to your question, meaning yes, <laughs> it's like quenching for me. That's a beautiful answer. I also just remembered uh, that maybe I misspoke when I said that the Remembrancer's Tale is the first installation in the Neverness universe because the Orca song is also somewhat connected to the Neverness universe because uh, the whales quench to Agathange. Is that right? Uh, there was a mention of Agathange in there. And so I thought, oh, wow, this is great. It's like a, a side story on Earth. You know, I do mention Orcas in, in Neverness. Uh... Where when Mally goes to Agathange and right. gets gets some gets some healing, as it were, and uh, yeah, so somehow I'm like tying all my all, all everything together. Maybe not in a hugely unified way, but uh, yeah, Agathange right. represents this kind of like I don't know ideal heaven type of planet, but. But sort of not, because you know, there's the history of Agathange in the Neverness universe. It is, uh, you know, essentially people that carved their human forms into the forms of aquatic creatures, and and so you know, that's certainly no heaven, but uh, it's represented in some ways as as this ideal where people can go to be healed. Uh, mm -hmm. So that would apply to both the you know universes. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we can go back to uh, talk a little bit more about the Remembrancer's Tale. I have a couple other uh, quotes I want to read here. Um, again, to give our readers, our listeners, a flavor of your writing and also the subject matter. Um, so, so here you talk a lot about memory, um, and not just as a person might experience memories, but as something deeper and somehow possibly fundamental to the universe, like space or time or energy um so here here's a here's something you say um in the remembrancer's tale some of rain's fellow academicians spoke of memory as an outfolding of explicate representations of a deeper implicate order a man's memory according to others was only part of a universal hologram formed as the universe evolved and recorded all events occurring in space-time Many remembrancers believed, more simply, that matter was in some deep sense nothing but pure memory, and that the meaning of evolution was to be found in the way that the primordial particles of matter generated out of the universe's fiery explosion into being had learned over billions of years how to assemble themselves into progressively higher and more complex states. The more mystical of Rain's brethren thus viewed reality as matters remembering the fundamental purpose with which it had been imbued. 
Amazing. I love that. I'm a physicist. So I don't, I hear lots of stuff about quantum mechanics and all that sort of thing, but I've never heard anybody sort of contemplate and, and imagine, you know, something like memory being woven into the fundamental structure of the universe. Where did you come up with that? Is this something you've been thinking about a long time or have you read other people contemplating this kind of notion? Yeah, good questions. <laughs> kind of deep and complex questions. I have been thinking about it for a long time, uh, you know, asking myself, what is memory? Uh, what, what is consciousness? And, you know, we talk about uh, RAM, ROM, read-only memory on our computers, but those memories don't seem to be anything like the way our memories work. Yeah, and as far as I can tell, no one really has any idea how our memories work. Uh, hmm. There do not appear to be engrams in the human brain that record individual memories the same way that, that uh, you know, bytes of computer uh, space do. So then, then, then what is it? How does it relate to consciousness? Uh, I think we've seen movies where people are am amnesic and, and lose their memories. Uh, if you can imagine right now just like closing your eyes and when you open them you have absolutely zero memory of of what happened in your life or who you're who you are wouldn't that entail some sort of loss of consciousness i mean there has to be some kind of relation between the two so so there was always that piece and then the question of what is memory would lead into the question of what is consciousness well that's an even bigger can of worms uh, that a lot of people don't really want to open. And, and it's like uh, one of the major, maybe criticisms of science right now, that science as it's constituted of being this, you know, reductive materialistic system can't really explain what memory is or consciousness is rather, uh, either actually right now. And, and so a lot of people think it's going to happen uh, you know, all we have to do is get sophisticated enough in our brain models to do that. But a lot of people think that the whole approach is just all wrong, that we, that, that we really don't understand something fundamental about the universe. Uh, idealists such as uh, Bernardo Kastrup, of course, uh, are viewing things as the opposite. They're saying, well, no, uh, mind is fundamental. Mind and consciousness are fundamental. And out of that comes the material universe. And that's been an argument that's, that, that just goes way, way back. Uh, I think Plato might have made it, but, you know, certainly philosophers such as... Uh, Bishop Berkeley. Uh, Berkeley, yes. Berkeley, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, he, 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 he's... I refute him thus, thump. <laughs> anyway. Right, right. So, so that, that, that's all played in. So, the, you know, I've been, been thinking about these things for just a long, long time. Uh, as far as memory goes, you know, we could look at it as something like, oh, it just emerges. You know, matter gets complicated enough, it just emerges. But, you know, it seems to me, and I am you know, not as up on this as I would like to be, but a lot of people are just physicists and uh, thermodynamicists and, uh, informational scientists, people who deal with sciences of complexity, they're just coming up with a, literally a new paradigm for the way that we are going to view the universe, which is just not this, you know, random bits of dead matter 
suddenly colliding, coming together by this fantastic chance that probably only happened once in the universe at one time in history here on Earth, and boom, we have life. And maybe that's the only life in, in the cosmos. Uh, and then somehow this life became complex and somehow mind emerged from all that. And, you know, that that's like the, 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 the materialist way of looking at everything. And that seems to be just totally inadequate to explain everything. And I have felt that for years. I mean, my, my thinking on that, my, my feelings on that just go back, you know, I don't know, 40 or 50 years possibly, because it just didn't seem possible. Uh, the probabilities are all against it. And that's one reason why people, some people think that, yeah, it could have only happened on Earth because the chance is just too small. So the, the newer view, which, you know, I've been playing with for a long time, uh, and, and, and actually I'm presently reading a book that I can recommend to anyone. Uh, I'll hold it up to you in case you haven't seen this. Uh, Romance of Reality. Cool. You, I don't know it. That no. one? What if our cosmic purpose is to create our own cosmic purpose? <laughs> this book will blow your mind. Well, uh, it, it sounds like one of those woo-woo books, but it's really not. You know, goes into uh, detailed explanation of thermodynamics, second law of thermodynamics, and how, you know, given all the science of that, then life would be inevitable. Consciousness would be inevitable. Increase of intelligence, increase of consciousness would be inevitable rather than just this chance thing that happens. Uh, it's, it's, and all according to, you know, well-established scientific laws, uh, you know, what are, what are we as organisms? We are organisms that are far from thermodynamic equilibrium. The only way we can stay at that state is to process energy. And when we do that, the argument of this book is it automatically creates higher states, it automatically creates uh, information. Hmm. And, and, and that's something that I've played with, an idea that I've played with in my books for a long time, is that, you know, information is created. Well, then I don't remember when it was that some of the particle physicists, uh, you know, started thinking, well, okay, what is everything made of? Uh, and some of them say basically information. So this idea of memory being a key, you know, uh, uh, an undergirding of all reality was certainly not new to me. I mean, I, I don't know what is new to me, if anything, maybe nothing. But that, that idea has been floating around for many years, uh, that in some sense information is key. And, and that's a little bit, a little bit different than saying, oh, you know, mind exists and mind creates reality, different than the idealists, than, than what the idealists do. But uh, there, there is a sense that at its core, whatever existence is, whatever matter is, is something conscious, intelligent, some kind of information, some kind of memory, something like that. Mm -hmm. In the Remembrance's Tale, it was natural enough for me to talk about memory in that regard do you think we're getting to the point of narrowing in on this is this something that we will all agree on or is it always going to be kind of ambiguous as far as i can tell right now there's a huge war going on between uh, you know the reductionist materialist and and the the complexity scientists who say no you know 
the old approach of, you know, the Newtonian billiard bar ball universe where little pieces of matter just randomly move and, and, uh, and literally, you know, bump themselves into life uh, is, is really not the right way to look at, at the universe. And uh, indeed, many of the materialists are forced into a position of saying, oh, well, consciousness, that would be an emergent property, but it's not really real. It's just like something that we think is real. And, and so philosophers like Dennett, uh, Daniel Dennett, and, and, and others are just saying, well, you know, this, this thing that we call consciousness, our most fundamental sense of who we are, is in some sense an epiphenomenon. So yeah, I, I think there was just many, many scientists who, who are moving in the opposite direction of just saying, no, uh, that, that old model is completely inadequate. We, you know, we need uh, the science of uh, complexity theory, uh, thermodynamics, and, and all these other uh, scientists, sciences to, to explain what's going on. Now, they say that, will they ever actually be able to explain it? I don't know. So what, what would you say memory, what is, what is memory's role in information? What, how are they related? What's your interpretation of that or your understanding of it? I don't have a good understanding. I'm sorry to say, Tristan. I wish I could just, you know, get on the other end of this interview and just, oh, you know, David Zindel has all the answers. I, I, I don't. Uh, information <laughs> is, is pretty much a, a well-established scientific concept, as far as I could tell, was that the modern articulation of that was invented by Claude Shannon, uh, who, who founded cybernetics. And, and so that, that's a well-defined scientific thing. You know, here's what information is. How does that relate to memory? I, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll also add one thing. In, in grad school, I read a classic paper. Um, I mean, this war that you're talking about between reductionism and complexity, David, uh, has been going on since at least the 60s and 70s. So there's a famous paper called More is Different. It's by Paul Anderson, who's a you know very well established and, and and successful scientist, and and he simply points out that you know more is you know, that there isn't you know just because something is small doesn't make it more fundamental. Uh, temperature, right, is fundamental. Temperature is an absolutely fundamental physical notion, and yet it doesn't make sense. It's completely meaningless at the level of a single particle. Okay. Temperature is an emergent property, just like you said about, you know, consciousness or memory. Uh, you know, there are emergent properties in the universe that are no less fundamental than, I don't know, position or velocity or something like that. I mean, you can't do statistical mechanics or thermodynamics or most of much of physics if you can't make uh, you know, fundamental notions about emergent properties like temperature, like color. Um, you know, they're no less fundamental for being made up fundamentally of many things working together. Um, so anyway, I think, you know, it, it's a debate that's been going a long time and I, I find it really fascinating to link this and the now think physically about not just information, but memory, uh, as you say. And it's not that, you know, this idealism, this philosophical position is not that a human brain, you know, creates the external reality i've always interpreted that it's a very sort of mystical pantheistic kind of idea that that the universe itself is the mind of god right it, it is the processing of information in the universe is what it means for the universe to think um and, and or to imagine or to remember um and i think that's a pretty pretty valuable spiritual 
philosophical position. Yeah, I think that's a great statement. And, you know, to get back to your earlier question of uh, what's the, I think the, the quote you read from my book was about the relation of individual memory to, to universal memory, if there is any, if, there, if universal memory does exist. And of course, that's a very, very old notion. I mean, uh, in, in my Neverness Universe, the Akashics, that's, that's one of the things that they study. And, and, and that's a word that comes from Sanskrit, I believe. Uh, the, the Akasha was this, you know, essentially universal memory. Uh, there's the Akashic records. <clears throat> you know, everything that's ever happened is somehow <clears throat> recorded in these uh, Akashic records, which exist where? I mean, I don't, they don't exist anywhere in space and time. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure authors like Borges, you know, riffed on that with his, you know, infinite library. <clears throat> so what do I think about that? I, I think, what would be the point? <laughs> and this is, uh, <clears throat> you know, a uh, kind of a woo-woo approach to things, you know. Uh, I can't validate this other than saying, uh, what's the point of life if, if we all just die anyway? Okay, well, what's the point? of having all these experiences if they're just all lost. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that great scene at the end of Blade Runner where uh, where, where the android, what's his name? Uh, Rucker Howard, I, that's his human name. I forget his name in the movie. Roy, but, Roy yeah. Batty. Roy, Roy, that's right. So he, he, he's, he's, his time's up, right? He's about to die and he, he talks about some of his memories and it's all gonna be lost in time like tears in the rain I, I just think that was a beautiful line and i think it was something that he had lived by the way i don't mm -hmm. think that was in the script i sort of have a memory of reading that but it's like everything he's ever been is just going to be lost like tears in the rain and that just seems to me on an emotional level just unacceptable yeah. and so you know i can't argue why individual memory should be part of a greater universal holographic memory, but it just doesn't seem like a good way to have a universe. Well, I do find myself closer to any sort of interpretation of what spiritual spiritualism would be when I experience art, when I hear beautiful music, when I read beautiful words, and I wonder what correlation that has to memory and 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 consciousness for that matter it, it if others other humans and our expression are what help us get closer to some to understanding what memory and consciousness uh and possibly some sort of eternal memory could possibly be that, that might be a really great statement about what art really is or, or should do ideally yeah. Well, the ancient Greeks said that uh, truth is beauty, right? And beauty is truth. And so there might be some connection there that what we, what we experience as beauty is is somehow akin to the same, you know, to a physical truth or to a universe expressing itself, you know, truly. I don't know. It's an old notion. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Marty, because I feel like it's a notion that's really like, critical to all my books. Uh, so sometime during the writing and then aftermath of, of, of writing of writing neverness uh a, a critic actually kind of like took me to task i mean john clute one of the great critics of the science fiction field and he said well you know basically he really likes his novel but there's some you know clap trap about programs that run the human mind and 
and you know these essential programs can be downloaded and you know that gets to the whole uh, business of uh, not downloaded uploaded into computers and somehow we can just project our our beings into machines and that that's been going on in science fiction for a long time and, and so I was at some point faced with a choice well do I want to roll in that direction and the more I thought about it the more I thought no did I have a good scientific reason for it you know, there's a lot in my books that is uh, not dismissive of AI, but really kind of uh, placing AI in a category of other. You know, like maybe this is some kind of intelligent intelligence without consciousness. And, and so I, I, I realized, uh, eventually I came to a conscious decision. How do I want to deal with AI? How do I want to deal with um, this, you know, billiard ball universe in which everything is dead unless somehow life magically happens? And and I realized that getting back to Marty's statement about art and what Tristan said about art too, uh, I rejected it for my own novels, not because I think. It's not scientifically possible. You know, maybe everything is all dead. Maybe our memories just disappear after we die. Or after we think them, our thoughts just disappear. Maybe it's all meaningless. Maybe there's no direction to the universe. Maybe artificial intelligence will replace it. So I rejected that not so much out of scientific principle, but just out of aesthetic principle. It's just ugly. <laughs> <laughs> So this, this idea of a whole universe that comes alive, that drives its own evolution, that is infinitely various uh, and beautiful and, 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 and new, and uh, that's just more appealing to me and uh, seem to have more possibilities from a literary. It's so beautiful, it must be true. <laughs> or it's so beautiful, yeah. it should be true. Yeah. I've, I've, I've recently read accounts of... Uh, scientists or mathematicians who who can get a bit carried away with that it's like oh you know uh here's this here's this new you know uh equation uh for string theory that's so beautiful it must be true you know that that idea and of course that's been true many many times in the past something that is beautiful was true and something that was true is beautiful but uh that that was my basic motivation yeah, to create beauty for myself. I mean, that's part of when I sit down and write. I, I don't want to just sit and write about ugly things. I mean, there's plenty of people who do that, right? <laughs> Dystopias yeah. and, and horror stories and, and, and you know, uh, presumably very personal tales of just, you know, oh, everything's, t everything's horrible and my, my life is horrible. And I, I, I didn't want to do that ever. Something that kind of relates to what we're talking about is another short story. Um that I have here, and it's a bit of a treat. Uh, Marty, I don't think you've read this, so I'm gonna pass this along. When the Rose is Dead. Oh. And uh, I did read this a long time ago, and it has very similar themes to what we're discussing right now. Um, this is the saddest story I know, is the opening line, and it's just, uh, it's gorgeous. And uh, I think, David, you just touched up on some of the themes from that story as well. So this this is just something that's, close to your heart and memory, telling stories and uh, beginning and end. Uh, it's uh, 
you really give us a lot to to think about. You're a modern day philosopher. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that, but I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I haven't thought about that story in years. And now that you say it, I was probably uh, very concerned about memory at that point because that was a story about a person's uh, me- who who actually. Uh, well, I'm not going to give too much away, but, but again, that's memory plays a huge part of that story. It actually, underpins the whole story. So, uh, yeah, that that was going on when when I was uh, writing Neverness, and I think I wrote that novel uh, story a little bit after Neverness, as I remember. But yeah, memory does does always haunt me. Yeah. I actually have read that story. It's in your collection uh, called Shanadar. So I know yeah. I, I bought a, I bought your short story collection off of your webpage, um, which has the original uh, you know story short story that that gave rise to Neverness called Shanadar. But it also has that story and and a few others that really stick in my mind about the tiger. Uh, actually, I noticed you you put the tiger uh, story. I, I can't remember the name of it, but. Um, it's in the Remembrancer's Tale. Yes, uh, you sort of cycled part of it into in there. I noticed with being eaten by the tiger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'd had i had had that story in my mind to write for a long time. I just had this yeah. image of this kind of like magical tiger that walks into this public square with a lot of people, and uh, you know what's the mystery of the tiger? And of course, everything came from the Blake poem, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. So everything came from that. And that poem I've quoted all through my books, you know, it was quoted in Neverness. And I'm sure I must've quoted somewhere in the Remembrancer's Tale. I don't remember right now, but uh, so I I just had that image in my mind and then a story grew around it. And uh, so, yeah, I, I guess you could say, I don't think any of the prose was duplicated. I think just the idea was duplicated, as I remember. But, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you talk about meeting Timothy Leary in a bar uh, and your long conversation with him. Uh, probably, uh, I don't know if this was in the 70s, maybe the 80s, maybe the 60s. 80s, 80s, 80s yeah. It was 80s, after I after I published Neverness. So I want to say, oh, right. yeah. and, and we could we could look this up, but I want to say 88 or 89, probably 89, it was at the World Science Fiction, World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago. So he, Larry's always read, did always read science fiction. And, and in a sense, some of his, uh, you know, ideas are just very science fictional. And, and so he, he was at the convention for reasons uh, of his own. You know, maybe he's just a geeky fan at heart like anybody else. <laughs> but, you know, I, I met him in a bar and, and you know, I, I, I said that, oh, you know, I've read your books and you've been very influential. And I told him who I was. He had read Neverness and then and we just had our conversation. And, and by the way, for anyone that does read this, this is not a literal transcription. This is my recreation, my my memory of the uh, of the conversation because I couldn't, you know, remember back fifteen years uh, word for word. But but yeah, uh, he he's a fascinating guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and you guys thought a lot about the same things. I mean, which really kind of came as a revelation to me, and and it also really spoke to me about how. Uh, early you had thought of 
a lot of these things about AI, artificial intelligence and consciousness and computers and, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, you were one of the early, or certainly you were thinking and, and writing about these things that have now become kind of common topics, I think, in science fiction in a way they weren't before. Uh, I'll read a little bit here from from Splendor. He laughed at this and said, but you wrote about it in Neverness. Cyberspace, the interface with computers, the size of moons, the interface with your lightships, ideoplasts, the number storm, slow time and quick time, the computer-generated cosmic consciousness of the manifold. Pretty cool stuff. Anyway, if I don't know if that's a quote from him or, or your recollection, but that must have been quite something to hear from Timothy Leary, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, you had such foundation. You had so much to say so early on about these 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 topics. Yeah, I was really impressed that he not only read my book, of course, but that he remembered a lot of it. I mean, that's like, wow, you know. And, and I don't want to say Timothy Leary was my hero or idol or anything like that, but he made a huge impression on me. You know, he yeah. he uh, was at the forefront of a consciousness revolution for for good and for bad. I mean, there were some things that. He did that I don't really admire. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, was it good for him just to encourage hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, just to turn on with, with, with psychoactive active drugs? Uh, and, and I don't have an answer to that one. It, it changed society. It changed many, 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 many people. Uh, but he was hugely influential. He has a model for the unfolding of human evolution, uh, it's eightfold model of circuits in the human brain. And, you know, that was a, uh, that was a big thing for me. Uh, I, I don't, didn't necessarily think that model was just really representative, but just the fact that people were thinking about that and trying to imagine these higher potentials, uh, you know, this, uh, neuro neurogenetic, uh, level mm. that we're accessing our, our, our DNA. And then there's, and I might be getting these wrong because it's been a while since I, I, I looked at all these, but then there's a level where we're accessing our DNA. And, and it's just like, these are great ideas. He, his ideas were science fictional. He easily, mm -hmm. and he might've written a science fiction novel. I don't remember, but he easily, his heart was with science fiction as much as anybody I've ever known. And, and his thoughts were, you know, he thought, when, when the internet came along, he said, oh, this is going to be, you know, electronic LSD. Well, it is, and, and it wasn't, <laughs> but, right. but he, was, he was enthused about that. And then he was enthused about, you know, migrating into space. He had a little, uh, little you know, he, he was always big with slogans, right? He, so his, his was smile. So that was S, space, M, space migration, uh, intelligence, increase, life extension. And that was all going to happen in these like L5, you know, colonies orbiting Earth as a start. And so he was just very, very big on all that after after his psychedelic period. And so he, he was just a fount of ideas for me. Yeah, yeah. And an inspiration, too. I mean, he he like moved a lot of people in our societies. Like his consciousness got dialed in and then a lot of people, people's lives were affected because of that. Well, I didn't want to, you know, push psychedelic drugs but i thought okay i can i can write these really cool things in novels and you know uh reach people that way yeah mm -hmm. i i would like to know of other inspirations that are kind of at the other end of the spectrum david uh more nature driven and uh 
um, from the past, uh, like The Quest for Fire, which was a film from 1981, or the work of Jean uh, Ole. Am I saying that right? Jean Ole, who did Clan of the Cave Bear. Um, right. Were those of inspiration to read? Because uh, f- for those um, that are going to read some of David's work, uh, there's a lot of writing of Neanderthal-like uh, uh, humans, and um, it's it's a beautiful contrast to the technology uh, of the distant future that we see. And I'm just wondering what inspiration comes from uh, nature and uh, and and those works. Yeah, great, great question, and very insightful, Tristan. Uh, because, oh. I feel like nature has always been hugely important to me. You know, starting as a kid, I would go out. We, we, our, our little development in Toledo, Ohio, our lawn literally abutted a forest. And so I used to just go out the back door into the woods. And I just remember having these great, uh, for a better word, mystical experiences out in the trees. And, and so I just loved being out there. I was out there for hours and I climbed these trees that just way too tall for a, five or six year old to climb. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose that's where I just started my, uh, just this idea that nature is great and things like classrooms, <laughs> cars, uh, you know, pollution aren't so great. I think to some extent in my books, I've, you know, there's some kind of idealization of nature and, and maybe not because, you know, the the Dabaki tribe, the Alloy, you know, there's some stuff going on with them that's, you know, less than ideal, less than, than uh, you know, peaceful and enlightened. But uh, I, and again, this is what I referred to last time or you know, a few, few minutes ago when we talked about aesthetic ideals. There's something always been utterly unesthetically appealing to me about, for instance, living in a space colony, right? It's like, you know, this it, one model would be a huge cylinder that would, you know, rotate another would be a, a wheel. And essentially what they are is shopping malls in space. And I, I just, you know, had a horror of all that aesthetically and uh, have a horror of our big cities and uh, even more so of our suburbs. And so in a lot of my books, I think there's this yearning to get back to nature, if, if, if nature is get backable. Uh, I mean, in some sense, everything is natural, you know, cities are a natural outgrowth of human, human capabilities and culture. But in, in another sense, there's something that we've really lost by living in cities. And I, I live in a city, I live in Denver, and there's times where I just want a cabin on the beach. That, that cabin that I wrote about in the wild, uh, you know, that's my ideal cabin off the coast of Oregon. And that's kind of where I want to be, you know, in that type of situation. So, uh, yeah, I, I know that was a long-winded answer to the question. I hope that made some sense. I no, it does for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Marty, do you have uh, more questions? And, I'll, and then also, David, I w- uh, is there anything you'd like to talk about that we haven't asked you? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, just to get back to what I mentioned earlier about these additional books uh, that I'm that I'm writing 
now or thinking about writing now. There's uh, the Scryer's Tale, and then there's uh, Timekeeper's Tale, and then there's uh, Haikuist Tale, and so there's just all these books that I really want to write and wow. feel like, first of all, am I too old to write them? And, and then second of all, will I have time to write them? Because it's just this huge project and it just happened. I never, you know, sought it out. It just suddenly realized I want to tell in detail, not just hint at this idea of the whole universe waking up to a higher state of consciousness and intelligence. Uh, I feel like I've dealt with that to some extent in my books, but my, you know, task what I want to do for the rest of my life is just to to do that in a way that would just be, you know, just like blow people's minds, just like be overwhelming. And it's not just, you know, not, not just the ideas, but just in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, how this would appeal emotionally. And I think I'm very much consciously involved with this notion of, no, I mean, we could have this, utterly, unbelievably imagine, barely imaginable, but, but wonderful future. And there's so much on our planet these days that's saying just the opposite. Our politics are just <laughs> you know, crazy right now. And people are losing hope that we're ever going to have a government that can actually respond to people's real needs and real problems or planetary problems, such as global warming. Uh, nuclear weapons persist and, you know, just as capable of blowing ourselves up 10 minutes from now as we were 40 years ago. And, um, you know, there's, there's no new threat of AI, you know, just, just within the past month, I think everyone's now talking about chat GT, GPT and, oh, is it going to just totally trash the careers of, uh, of cover artists, right? Because you can just type into chat GPT or, or Dolly is, you know, like its companion program. Okay, here's what I want. Uh, you know, I want uh, uh, penguins, you know, dancing on uh, icebergs, uh, you know, floating in Lake Erie or whatever. So there's a sense of that. It's like, okay, AI is now this huge threat. And, and so and then, then we have these people who are these public, public figures who are in control of what's going on, and they seem to be not just stupid but insane. And so I feel like there's just a sense of doom across our planet, like we're going to have a horrible future. And I guess I want to write something that would say no. Uh, you know, we don't we don't exist in this mechanistic trap of our own making where earth is going to be defiled and everybody's just going to die and civilization is going to crash. No, what, what, what lies before us is so unimaginably beautiful and splendid that it would just, you know, take your breath away. So that would be what I would want to say is, that, that's where all this is headed. And it came out of nowhere. I thought it was done with this series, but I feel like uh, life or the gods of fiction or whoever had other plans. Well, that's fantastic. Thank God. Thank God for David Zindel giving us some hope for the future. Yeah. 
You know, we just uh, we talked to Kim Stanley Robinson last week and uh, about his latest book, uh, The Ministry for the Future. I don't know if you've seen it or, or heard of it, but it is also, I mean, a guy like Kim Stanley Robinson, he's been writing about climate change and sort of climate fiction for decades and decades. And and it was amazing to talk to him because he, you know, with with the Ministry for the Future, it's kind of a message of hope. It, it's it's putting all the things together that we could do to make to fix the problems, you know, uh, and at the end of the day coming out and, you know, it was neat hearing him who's been an activist and has been, you know, right in the muck of all the problems, the environmental and climate problems and been banging on doors and yelling at people for it for his entire career. And now he's, he feels heard, you know, he sort of said, you know, it's really great. People are listening now. It's the first time something's changed. Um, and uh and and i'm glad to hear i mean i just want more of that i think the world needs that kind of message and uh and and needs to have some sort of hope some sort of you know uh, eye line uh, sight line through to the future that we can actually come out the other side of this and things can get better yeah stan stan is great you know i corresponded with him actually because one of my not, not so much concern for the neverness universe and, and future, but for the here and now is, could we create a civilization right now that is sustaining and non-polluting? In other words, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're doing right now are, we, we do through computers. Our, our call right now is being done through computers. And of course, there's, you know, that that entails uh, <clears throat> Uh, the employment of microchips and then microchips have to be manufactured. Is there any way to do that? So we're not creating this horrible, you know, uh, you know, pollution and, and waste. And, you know, can we have a, a technological civilization that is sustainable? And so, you know, one of my questions to him, because I regarded him as like the go-to guy. I mean, I don't know anyone who's uh, smarter or more knowledgeable about all this than he is. And so my question was, okay, who is writing on this? And so he you know, gave me a list of some people that were doing these writings. And I feel like they were invaluable for my thinking about all that. Not that that's going into my new novels, but just in terms of it's going into my <laughs> present sense of what, what can we do right now? So I'm glad you mentioned him because he's just you know among the absolute best writers out there. Thanks, David. Uh, I, I really... I can't wait to hear to read the Scryer's tale and then the, mm. the time and keepers. then the timekeeper's tale. Well, I do have the same feeling as when we talked a year and a half ago. As I've said, I uh, I'm more of a materialist in the, my thinking, um, and I always want there to be more. I think there's a lot of us that are, uh, and I don't deny the truth that anyone has to share. But when you share what your understanding of truth in your art. Uh, and then when we, when we've spoken to you a couple times now, David, you get me closer to um, uh, understanding that there's a little more connectedness uh, out there that uh, we should be looking at. And I appreciate that very much. It makes me feel very warm, which makes me want to look deeper into what you share. So thank you for that, David. Well, well thanks, Tristan. And, and my feeling is even if I'm wrong, even if you know people like me are wrong, it's just a nicer way to live. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks right. again, David. That's Thank a great note to end on. 
Thank you for joining us once again. Next week, Sean Gunn is on the show. Sean is in Guardians of the Galaxy. He plays Greglin. He also is the motion capture for Rocket, the raccoon. He's also the brother of James Gunn, who makes all those movies, which is pretty awesome. So we're happy to have Sean on. Please join us for that one. Until next time.